If you enjoyed podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Medicine in America, hosted by Anthony Manson and Todd Harrington, shares the stories of physicians, other healthcare professionals, and industry leaders who are changing the way we deliver care. There's an episode that you should check out called Primary Care Reimagined with Subscription-Based Preventative Care Model. It's an inspiring call for a paradigm shift in primary care. All of their episodes highlight innovative ideas at the forefront of the movement to transform our healthcare system. Check out Medicine in America on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to Iowa to Health. I'm Jeremy Quinby. How are you doing, my friends? This is episode 79 of the podcast. If you're a new listener, I want to welcome you to the show. Highway to Health is a place for you to explore and create your own blueprint for health. Having worked in integrative health for nearly 25 years, I'm acutely aware of how all aspects of our lives come to have an effect on our overall state of being. And it's my hope that through the content and conversations that you get here, you'll be more engaged and empowered personally and in your communities. And today I've got Meta Dyerberg back on the show uh, to speak with us about the amazing work that she's involved with in health coaching and data tracking for individuals with autoimmune challenges. And she'll be up in just a moment. But first, uh, I want to thank those of you who continue to support the podcast by sharing, reposting, and through the financial support you provide. Your dollars are being put to good use right now to help us build this amazing network and health resources for thousands of listeners, many of whom lack access to quality care and education. We're also putting the finishing touches on our new website, highway2.health, where you'll be able to search and explore dozens of topics, watch and listen to inspiring content, and get better resources than you get from traditional news sources. If you'd like to become part of this community of health supporters, you can support the show for as little as $1 a month by going to patreon.com forward slash highway to health, or click the support link in the show notes on the app you're listening to here and become a supporter today. I'm so excited to have Meta back on the show. She's the founder and CEO of MyMe, a digital health company focused on improving the quality of life for individuals with immune challenges. And if you want to learn more about her story and innovations, you can check out episode 12 of season one to learn more. We got caught up with each other on the phone this past summer, and I thought it was time to catch you all up on her work. Not, not only is MyMe improving the way that they're working with autoimmune disease, They've been tracking and studying these same individuals who have had COVID and are gaining an understanding of their ability to recover and teaching us not only about autoimmune recovery, but about our innate healing potential. I think you're really going to enjoy listening to this one. And if you're a more visual learner, you can check this one out on YouTube by searching for Highway to Health Podcast or Jeremy Quinby. And you can also see my new pandemic look. Please enjoy my conversation with Meta Dyerberg. So, so it's been three years since we've done one of these. That's crazy. I know. That is insane. And so, well, I'm glad to be back. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. How long? How long is, has has this project been going on now? Total. So, so I was the NF one. So for me personally, it's been eight years. Okay. But the company was incorporated in 2017. Okay. So that must have been right around the time that, that you were incorporating then, that we did this last time. Yeah. It's amazing. It's amazing everything that Very you've done. exciting how time flies, right? Yeah. Back then it was talk about the dreams of how things would be, and now it's actually what we're doing, right? Yeah. Uh, a mutual friend of ours who uh, I did a podcast with recently uh, referred to you as a powerhouse. <laughs> Well, you I, I thought you should know. If you want to change healthcare in the in the U.S., there has to be uh, somewhere to recharge, right? Yeah, yeah. So for, for 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 people who haven't listened to our first episode, um, if you could just give us a, a a quick background on how this whole project kind of came to be, maybe just briefly about you know your your challenges with autoimmune issues. And sort of what you saw as as the the need that sort of pushed you into this space. Yeah. So I was one of many that uh, struggled for many many years with autoimmune disease myself. Uh, I 
got my first autoimmune disease when I was 14. And then in my 20s, the first half of my 20s, I scrambled, went from doctor to doctor, not really getting any good answers. And then the second half of my 20s, I, you know, by 27, I couldn't walk up a flight of stairs. By 30, I had six autoimmune conditions and was really setting out to be a chronic patient. Um, And then about, yeah, it's almost nine years ago, my doctor's team told me they had great news and proceeded to tell me that I wasn't going to quote unquote die in the immediate future. Yeah. And that was really, I think everybody in their journeys and their lives have a couple of, of sort of very distinct moments where everything just changed. Yeah. And for me, that moment was when I went from being a disempowered patient to being an empowered human being. And I think, you know, I probably said this last time as well, but, People like now to talk about my journey like I was this woman with a vision and I just like walked out of the hospital and started building. Yeah. And that was not how it was. I was I was scrambling to get some control and reclaim my health and got lucky that because I didn't know anything about healthcare, I applied the only thing that I did understand, which was sort of a process optimization to my own body. Yeah. And I was able to go from, you know, journaling to translating it to Excel spreadsheets, to some homemade algorithms, to at the end, a solution. And I was able to, in 16 months, reverse my blood work to normal. Uh, I got symptom-free and I've been drug and symptom-free now for over eight years. So it was sort of the, the dream result but it was with a lot of uncertainty going into it, obviously. Yeah. And what is today the, the case is that I then later, you know, first became a, a part of Quantified Self, which was really biohacking um, and a lot of very early sort of um, trial and errors and A-B testing to, to get to where we are today, where we've, I founded um, a company called MyMe. Uh, we've developed a digital approach to managing autoimmune diseases. Mm-hmm. So like lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, Crohn's. For, um, and, and we believe that it will transform the way autoimmunity is treated overall. Yeah. So our clinically validated technology is a combination of a mobile app, data analytics, and certified health coaches to identify triggers for disease symptoms. Um, our customers are health plans, large self-insured employers, and individuals. Um, but I think what's interesting when it really comes down to it is that it's it's a fundamental new take. We're rethinking autoimmunity. Right. And we do it so by instead of thinking of autoimmune as these 100 plus different diseases distinguished by where the body is getting attacked, we are asking a very different question, which is why. So we're looking yeah. at the mechanism. We're looking at what is it that is triggering your body or your autoimmune system to, uh, or immune system, sorry, I'm like getting ahead of myself here. But what is it that's triggering your immune system to attack itself? Yeah. And when when you really pinpoint it to that, then the, the clarity starts to begin. And for us, you know, we then take those machine learnings and through health coaching, translate them into behavior changes. I'm a big believer that finding sort of like the clues is important, but nowhere near as important as the ability to translate those insights into sustainable behavior change. Yeah. I'm, I'm wondering, sort of going back to what your autoimmune you know, challenge was to start because you and I both, we have this sort of shared thing that we both ended up in a health related field, trying to solve our own problems. And, you know, biohacking was not a term back at that point. We were just simply like using whatever skill sets we had and probably a lot of research, some of it not (laughs) on on the internet (laughs) to try to, you know, solve some of these problems. But, you know, just so some people, I mean, this is, the, I think it's really interesting the, the way that you guys are pushing into this right now, because autoimmunity, because, because I do a lot of work with autonomic nervous system response, auto, autoimmunity is, is basically when that system gets off track, whether it's a signal delay or the body starts to sort of, you know, 
overshoot the mark on on trying to you know put out fires and, and things that are going on. What was what were your early signs? And then, and then, if you could give some kind of a maybe a, an abbreviated version of, of the way that you're now thinking about what autoimmune uh, autoimmune challenge actually is. So, in terms of, of my own personal journey, you mean like yeah. what were my symptoms? Yeah, where, so, where, where you started, and, and then kind of where, where you are now today in terms of like you know the, what you what you saw there, and then how you kind of have have taken all this information that you've gotten over the last eight years, even with my me. And, and putting and redefining that stuff. Yeah. So I, because psoriasis is a skin disease that's very visible, I was from a very early age, very aware of, you know, dietary being a big part. Yeah. I remember reading like Dr. Pagano, which was sort of like the first big book on how to cure psoriasis. And yeah. it, it was very hard to follow. And, um, it was always very strict regimes and no matter what sort of dietary change you made, in my case, it didn't just make a lot of difference. In my early twenties, my biggest problem was that I actually had very little control over my body. I um, luckily had a boss at the time who was okay with me bursting into tears without even knowing why, because my thyroid was like completely off the charts or, you know, I lost my eyesight a lot. So I would go to the ER and they would take one look at my bulging eyes and my, you know, um, sort of uh, extended thyroid gland. And they were like, oh, we know exactly what's wrong with you. And I would always say the same thing is like, I was here, you know, just a few weeks ago. And back then you also thought you knew exactly what was wrong with me. So could we please wait with the medication until tomorrow? Because you're gonna come back surprised. Mm-hmm. And they're like, no, 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 we've seen this. And then sure enough, the next morning, they would come back with like seven residents in tow and be like, this is very bizarre. Your blood work is perfect. And I'm like, yeah. So it 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 was it was bumpy and, and there was a lot of confusion and there was um, a lot of um, sort of questions around whether it was all in my head. I remember seeing a psychiatrist at a very early age. It was my 24 or 25, literally coming to her with just one quest, which is, could you please label me a hypochondriac? Because then I can get on with my right, life. Right. <laughs> this is just not really working for me. Um, but where I am today, I'm no longer confused about what this is. Yeah. This is a, this is a slow build. This is a heavily influenced by environmental factors. And it's heavily influenced by the way that we've accelerated everything in our society. So when, when my grandmother has sort of knuckly hands that are like getting harder and harder to do patchwork, which to be fair, she's in her 90s. So it's, yeah. you know, she, she made it far with probably not the best instrumentation. But uh, when that becomes my three-year-old nephew getting diagnosed with juvenile arthritis, I get very confused because that's not the world we grew up in. We grew up in a world right. where... It was something you accumulated, but but it was at the back end of life. It wasn't at the front end. Yeah. And we've accelerated things to an extent where that's the case. Um, we've also now become very aware, uh, not just as human beings, but also in, in clinical research and so on, that lifestyle and environment is responsible for more than 80% of, of what's going on. So... So there's no longer this uh, belief that there is the the magic bullet uh, in terms of a medication that suppresses your immune system and then, you know, you're just going to be forever um, healthy. Because the reality is that most people are are struggling uh, on this journey for for a large variety of of reasons. What, What I believe to be true today is that when we, when we originally talked about the immune system getting quote unquote confused and attacking itself, first of all, like what are the disease category? Like if cancer was like just confused, like would we be okay with that? Like yeah. there's something fundamentally wrong with how little we understand about this confusion. Um, I believe that there is some very structural foundational pieces that are broken and because they break, and depending on the order of how they break, we can see that the systems over time break. So when I, for example, was a kid 
every everyone I knew pretty much went and had their appendix taken out, or it felt like it because it was yeah, yeah. not really that big of a deal. Yeah. Just the appendix. Um, I see the appendix today as sort of like the um, what is it called when your grandmother has like that little room in the kitchen, like um, a pantry. Yeah. So <laughs> so today. I think of uh, the appendix as the pantry of yeah. the microbiome. Yeah. It's a place to go and, you know, get a little if there's imbalance or put a little aside for later. And and we've just been very callous in the way that we've looked at, at sort of the body instrumentation. Yeah. So when, when my knee goes to work, we really think about body processes, optimization, as, as much as we think about the culprits and actually identifying triggers. Yeah. We have found in our data that there is a lot of, um, you know, organ involvement that is very specific to certain autoimmune diseases and stuff that if you uh, went, weave through uh, medical journals, you wouldn't find anything. And so, so to me, that's a challenge. It's a challenge that we've, we've not a better understanding of why there is different absorptions why there's the mechanisms that there are. And I think one of the things that I've sort of, um, I've talked a lot to uh, Dirk, who's at the Microbiome Institute at Johnson Johnson about it, because we talk about it almost like if you have, you know, like, um, like an old switchboard. So think about like an old telephone switchboard. Right, right. Somebody is sitting like flipping things. And the reality is that with autoimmune patients, that's very much the case. Some do not absorb certain things. Some are misfiring. But if you actually think of this as a very plain and simple instrumentation issue, then it becomes very simple, right? And some of the misfiring is also that the autoantibodies does not raise for all of these patients, which means that if you are a celiac patient, it's quite easy. You go and get blood work done. Right. And even for that population, it's only one in five in America that actually has gotten diagnosed. So even when there is a blood test that could do the work for you, right. we're still doing a pretty um, subpar job. But with the population that have triggers that are outside of what lab work can, can show them today, it's not that different. It's their body not having that that um, sort of ping. And instead of having, let's say, um, a peanut allergy where you bring out the EpiPen and your, your lips are swelling, um, you're just essentially doing something every day or quite often that is harmful to your body and you're breaking down the instrumentation over time. Yeah. So how many... How many people do you think are are being missed because these tests aren't aren't part of standard protocol for like in terms of autoimmune challenges or you know things like celiac where we 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 know that there's that there's a, a serious problem with processing but it's it's not part of regular blood work or something like that are there are there is is that something that you see starting to become, you know, part of, part of the, the process or is that, is that where people are falling through the cracks a lot of times when they're, when they're getting care? I think it's very easy. My, my answer to you will be somewhere between 80 and a hundred percent that we're missing. Is that right? Because the reality is when, when there's blood work to, to fix this, we only get it right 20% of the time. Okay. Meaning when there's no blood work, the percentages are higher. And we only see people who scrambled in a system that were unable to figure out what's going on. Yeah. It, does that mean that the system is doing anything wrong? No, I think right. that there's a lot of very well-meaning physicians doing the best they can, right. but with, with very few tools. And the only tools that we today have available is immunosuppressant drugs, which can, for some people, be the difference between you know, walking and not walking, but for, for many people do not make enough of a change for them to uh, reclaim their health. Yeah. And, and I know on the functional medicine side, because I'm coordinated more with that, most of those tests cost $500 and above out of pocket. So I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that the, the most immune challenged populations also can't afford those kinds of tests. 
So that's an unfortunately side effect is that this is, you know, it's 78% women. If you were of color, it's a higher percentage. If you're on low income, it's a higher percentage. It's, there is, it's sort of like the domino effect of, of a lot of different things that play in. But I will say that one of the reasons why autoimmunity is starting to ga- gain more traction in, in, in some aspects is that where that used to be the case, now autoimmunity is jumping categories. So whether you're white or of color, whether you're man or woman, whether you're a child or a teenager, everybody is getting hit. And, yeah. and that's actually a, the fundamental biggest change when you and me, I think we're about the same age. When, when we were young, people had seasonal allergies. Yeah. How many of your friends do you hear really complain about it the way that you remember from back in the day today, none. So on the other hand, what people have today is they have asthma. They have, uh, you know, gut-related IBS, IBD, whatever. Yeah. But it's a majority of people, if you actually poke around in your own circle of friends, it's crazy how many people have some sort of issue. Um, and that's actually, I think, uh, the bigger issue here is that we have very little data. There's no autoimmune registry in the U.S., so it's not like oncology or you know other diseases where there's registries available. The last official number is from 2008, and that was that 23 and a half million Americans were suffering from autoimmune disease. And then the next number was that 32 and a half million had elevated autoantibodies in 2012. Okay. We know that. Elevated autoantibodies mean that people have pre-autoimmune disease. They're basically, you know, preclinical, mm-hmm. but they are, uh, you know, similar to pre-diabetes setting out for that journey. Yeah. And that is, um, you know, troublesome because when we're looking at Europe, one in six, one in five, depending on what studies you look at, are pre-autoimmune. And generally, if you look at all the data up to 212, the U.S. has doubled that number. So if you looked at it like that, then the U.S. would actually have one in three as a pre-autoimmune disease, and the number would be somewhere between 100 and 110 million. So, so do you think that just based on, on what you've experienced, and you are European uh, and have family and have probably been helping them through different kinds of things as well, but do, do you think that there that there is a... Vast that vast of a difference, double in the U.S. versus Europe, or do you think it has to do with how things are treated at, at the outset, uh, onset of of any kind of um, challenge that's going on? Are they getting to things earlier, and is that part of what's causing you know the the numbers to be so different? Or I mean, I'm thinking about it in relation to COVID too. Like our numbers are are astronomical and i and i don't think these are these are made up numbers either and i know that this this country has a huge you know problem with diet and you know with with obesity and i think culturally too just lifestyle wise we 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 are getting into a place and i because this is what i treat on on a regular basis i mean a lot of times people come to see me for either pain sort of chronic pain or some kind of like you know they they've they've suffered from panic attacks and anxiety issues, and and there's almost always layers of things that that to me look like undiagnosed autoimmune issues, and sometimes I I lead them to somebody to have some testing done, and we we get feedback, and then there's always you know, is it the is it the issues going on physiologically that are causing this anxiety and some of the things that we would label mental health. Although I think that's sort of happening in a physical the gut, way, the gut pain relationship I think has been, right. uh, you know, an, an eyes exploration. <laughs> right, but but since you're so so in it, I'm I'm curious to if if you have any any opinions or any thoughts on on so what long, these disparities are. A lot of thoughts, but I'll uh, I'll try and see if I can be concise. First of all, I do not think that that uh, Europe necessarily have nailed autoimmunity either. I, I'm not necessarily impressed with, with any of the approaches that the, the current traditional medical society have been able to do. However, I will say that there is a tendency 
and actually let me back up, but like I think the 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 core difference between and let me just reference Denmark and not so much what goes on in every European country because Germany is phenomenal in this arena. Hmm. But in, in Denmark, we we are still in a much more traditional um, system, whereas the U.S. is a very specialized system. Yeah. That has its advantages on many fronts, but on the autoimmune front, it's actually a hindrance. So if, if I go to see my general GP and, and I am, you know, brain fogged to the extent where I can't remember my husband's name, my knee is hurting, I also have a little bit of stomach problems, whatever. The only goal would be to figure out which one of all these problems is the biggest issue you have right now, right. because then I can send you to a specialist. But the reality is that if you are a rheumatoid patient, then the knee and the stomach and that brain fog is all a result of the same thing. And if you go and have a knee replacement, it's not going to solve the brain fog or the stomach ache. Right. And so I think to a large extent, we run into an over-specialized system where we break processes into sort of box things. And that's not how processes work. Uh, you know, I often make the joke that, you know, when people say, I don't believe in supplements, I say, do you believe in taking the pill? And they're like, sure. But does that have to do with anything? I'm like, you just said that you don't believe in supplements because they're so small. Like the fact is you take this tiny, tiny pill and it prevents you from being pregnant. That That's a process somewhere in your system that is very easily targeted and instrumented. Yeah. Why would Why would other things not be able to do the same thing? You know, you take a two milligram pill versus two kilos of food. Why would those two kilos of food not have any influence on how your body processes will run? Yeah. Um, and I think that's the culprit of all of this is that we've sort of maneuvered our way into this specialized world where there's an expert or a pill or something for everything. But no matter how much you sort of try and manage these diseases, the underlying cul culprit is that we've basically just done a little too much of what was not good for us for a little too long and then neglected to do the things that were good for us. I think everybody can relate to the gym where, you know, if you go every other day, feels great, but then you take a break and then it like takes you two months to get back on the horse. Right. And, and if you do that in too many different areas of your life, then you become susceptible. That does not necessarily mean that you overnight become autoimmune, but if you then go through a serious event, and that could be anything from, yeah. you know, a car accident or a divorce or something emotional, losing a parent, or... you literally don't have the bandwidth yeah. to to cope with it, and that's also why COVID has been so detrimental in many ways because we are not just seeing people suffering in the traditional way, we are suffering people now with anxieties and loneliness and, you know, loss of jobs, like things that are beyond what we typically would think of as, as well-being. Although I'm, my, my point is still that being lonely is probably more detrimental to health than anything you can eat or, or do. Yeah. Um, so I think that from, from my perspective, you know, and COVID is a, a whole different ball game altogether, but you mentioned it. And I think, you know, we're, we're working with Mount Sinai and, and it's, it's been very eye opening to see that aside from the, the chest pain, which is definitely very COVID related, yeah. uh, the, the COVID long haulers to a large extent is uh, accelerated pre-autoimmune disease. And in some cases, autoimmune patients that are just hit a lot harder. Yeah. Um, the, the, the sort of average client is a 44 year old woman. Um, and she might not have known about it, but she was susceptible. And we've always known that viruses and infections were the main triggers for autoimmune disease. Yeah. We just never really counted on a virus hitting 70% of the population and, and then having it be an adaptable virus the way it is means that we're not just seeing sort of the, the, the population increase of autoimmune disease as we had expected originally, we are also seeing 
sort of this backlash in the COVID long haulers that, to be fair, is 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 quite scary. They are not just showing early signs of autoimmune disease. They are full-on myocarditis or dysgenia. And, and the reality is that that would typically take a long time to get to. And is there anyone that you've been working with personally then through this in terms of, or, or through MyMe that, that you're getting to sort of track now? Because I, I know this is a big part of, of what you're doing is, is the data tracking work, right? Yeah, so we, uh, we've we taken on uh, a population of, of COVID long haulers okay. and it's been, it's been quite fascinating to see how the resemblance of symptomology is very similar to the autoimmune population, however exasperated. So when you fill out sort of like the promise scores and all the PROs that we use in clinical work to sort of assess where a, a patient is on their journey, um, we can see that the quality of life um, impact on the COVID long haulers is much, much um more than it is on the autoimmune population, which makes sense because an autoimmune patient backs into this problem. So if you're over a decade or two are just getting more and more symptoms, you sort of adapt to it and you you sort of learn to live with it. So I would actually say that a lot of autoimmune mm-hmm. patients under um, represent in terms of how they are filling out forms. Whereas if you are a COVID long hauler, you know, March 11, you might have been 44 and, you know, feeling completely like the healthiest human being. Yeah. And then, you know, a month later, all of a sudden the world hit you on its head and you're now barely able to think two thoughts. Your body is unable to function and you're over-reporting because the change from one scenario yeah. to the other is just so fundamental that, um, that it makes sense. Yeah. But but it also meant that I think everybody, whether it was the big hospitals or providers like us, were very overwhelmed initially by taking on this population mm-hmm. because the anxiety and the mental issues that come with these major changes um, made it a, a confounding population. And, and it took its toll on, I think, all the, the healthcare workers that were trying to help. At least that's what we've seen internally. That it's been it's been um, a journey to get to a place where we now just see them as any other autoimmune patient. Yeah. We've been applying the same protocols from the beginning, but we saw in our staff that the anxiety levels and the fears and the um, all of the things that sort of naturally um, conveys in a conversation was taking its toll on our workers. Oh yeah, for sure. And and I think it's as part of the reason I thought it would be really interesting to talk to you at this time because I feel like we're going to learn so much about about health through this and it's it's a terrible thing to go through. Yeah. And you know, I I'm, I just did a podcast to we lost a family member ourselves. And so I did a podcast with thanks with um with the daughter who's who's my wife's very close cousin. And and so, you know, just, just to sort of hear what, the, what the process has been, you know, through all of this and then what we're, what we're really learning about our, ourselves, you know, like I'm talking about earlier about, you know, some things that are going on culturally about, about our, our lifestyle. And like, like you're talking, it's, it's interesting to think that someone who's been challenged so much, I've heard about this even with, with asthmatics, we're expecting asthmatics to really get hit hard with this, but they're actually doing quite well through COVID apparently because they're used to this kind of challenge. They know how to adapt. They know how to, you know, sometimes even, even be more preventative in the way that they go about things. So we're, we're going to learn a lot about, about who we are at, you know, as, as, as a human species right now too, but also just culturally. Yeah. I will say that we are right now actually reluctant to release the data that we have on the COVID long haulers because it's very clear data. But if we released it to the public, it would be misinterpreted. And there's a lot of sort of like the mainstream ways of living today and the tendencies in the way we live today that are overrepresented in the um, COVID long hauler population. Mm-hmm. And that that is sort of interesting 
from a society level, right? Because since we are now moving more towards, you know, plant-based and, and so on and so forth, um, what are the implications? I always go back to the avocado. The avocado was sort of like fat shamed for like a decade. And then all of a sudden it became everybody's best friend. Yeah. And I always think about, like we talk about healthcare and wellness or well-being as this thing you can put two lines under. But the reality is that every decade we sort of come up with a new way of assessing it and seeing it. And all of them can't be right. Um, so I think to a large extent, if, if, if I could have my way, I think the one thing I would want to learn from this as a society is that there is no one size fits all. Oh, no, and, for sure. and if we could actually as a society agree to that as a baseline, we would be so much better off. Yeah. Um, I, when my, my brother's child, my, my nephew, um, got the diagnosis at three and the wheelchair was brought home and, you know, my, my brother was devastated. I remember saying to him, think of this as a really good thing. And my brother was like, don't give me this. I'm like, I cannot deal with it. And I do not need you to tell me this. And I said to him, think about my trajectory. We've known since I was a small child that there was something off. I've been tested for diabetes every year since I was one. That's not normal. There's certain things that were broken from a very early point. There was just no way of knowing within the, the capabilities of the system in those days, born in the wrong decade. Your child is now in a position where we're going to figure out what it is that's triggering his system so that he can avoid that for the remainder of his life. Yeah. He's not going to have you know, surgeries or any of the damage internally that some of us have because we were sick for way too long or we were doing the wrong things for way too long. Yeah. And, you know, he was three at the time. Now it's four years later. He is actually, I'm very proud as aunt because he just swam 2000 meters, which is two kilometers at one hour and 38 minutes. And I'm like, how's that even like, I'm, I, my longest is a thousand meters. So I was sort of embarrassed to have to admit that, you know, a seven year old beat me. Yeah. But on the other hand, you know, just a year ago, my, my mom called me and said that um, my, her and my father had bought him a new bicycle because he had outgrown the one he had had from before the summer vacation. And he had looked at them and he had said, why would grandpa buy a bike for somebody who has a bad leg? And both my parents just had like freaked out, imagined like this kid has like just had all this pain. We just didn't know about it for all these years and whatever. And she called me and I said, actually, they've just been on vacation for three weeks. It's been three years since we figured all of this out. Yeah. My guess is they've been a little lax and he's paying the price for it. And my mom was furious because she's like, your brother's not an idiot. Like he wouldn't do this. And I said, I love my brother to bits, but the reality is that three years is a long time yeah. to sort of like take yourself away from, from a, a, a mental model. Right. And sure enough, 10 minutes later, my mom calls me and she goes, I don't even need to talk to your brother. And I'm like, okay. She goes, the kid tells me that he's had pancakes and that he's had all these things that he'd never tried before. And she goes, lacks my yeah. behind and I'm like okay and of course you know later I got the call from my brother and he's like next time you send out like the dogs please let me know in advance <laughs> because my mom had completely lost it but the reality is that my brother's child last year started his first day of school in a wheelchair because summer vacation apparently was a little bit too much of a vacation and that is you know obviously my family you know, everybody's sort of had their issues and we all on the other side and it's, it's beautiful, but it's a good example that it's not like the magic pill that we like conceptually because you take it and once you take it, everything is fine and you can do whatever you want. Yeah. With these things, it's once you identify you celiac or you have a chicken allergy or whatever it is that you have as a trigger, it's actually something you have to adhere to. And that is something we as human beings are not very good at. We are definitely as a society also 
in a position where, you know, can't you just have a little bit? You're right. Like, I remember the amount of times that I've said to somebody, I don't drink alcohol, I, you know, have liver issues. Well, just have one. I'm like, well, I only have one liver. I'm just actually just going to try and keep this yeah. one liver. But it's, but it's, it's that model, right? And then the flip side is that now, at least in New York, and of course, you know, New Yorkers, we love to be neurotic. So here there's nobody who doesn't sit down at a restaurant and tell the waiter that they're gluten intolerant or whatever they say. Yeah. Some of them probably are. But the fact is that the majority says it, meaning now they don't even take it serious. So for the people who really have issues, you should think it's getting easier. And in some ways it is because there's more choice. But in some ways it's also getting harder because nobody actually believes you really have it as a health issue. Yeah. They just think, oh, it's, you know, for whatever lifestyle issue. So um, I've definitely had meals where halfway through the meal, I've looked at the waiter and gone, I'm pretty sure that this meal is not what you told me it is. And they're like, oh, it's, oh, it's an allergy. And I'm like, yeah, that's why I told you I couldn't have it. And they're like, no, 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 I'm so sorry. I'll take this out and we'll, we'll remake it. And you're like thinking to yourself, okay, it's simply because they get this way too often. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and, and make it that personal, but but yeah. But but that's what it is, you know. And I think I the, I think your vacation thing is a very good example because I you know I started having back problems. You know, the, the worst of it was in my twenties. I, I probably started having it when I was younger. And there's some physical reasons, and there's probably some you know stress management and emotional reasons, and all these things that are that are sort of tied together with it. But I learned some strategies, you know, physically for managing it. And, and some of it has been... And when you do them, it works. And, and when I do them, it works. And I, I also, I have, I have a functional, like, you know, st structural shortness on one side. So I actually wear a lift in one of my shoes to keep my pelvis balanced. Because if I don't, I'm, I'm very crooked. It's very obvious visually. You can see it. But in the summers, a lot of times I'll start cheating and I'm wearing flip-flops and doing these things. And it doesn't take me very long. And every summer, I swear, every summer I go through this sometime in July where I'm like, what's going on? My body is just, it's, it's like falling apart on me again. And then I realize oh, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not doing the right things again, you know? So, it, and it, and it's, and it's never like a, an immediate fix, but if I just all of a sudden slowly start getting back into doing the things I'm supposed to be doing and wearing the right footwear for somebody who's, has but it's my also problem. interesting, right? Because for someone who's had, let's say you had that fail twice. Yeah. It's funny that that third summer, you don't get a glue on underneath a flip-flop and just acknowledge that, hey, in the summertime, I don't want to wear winter shoes. I, I know. I'm a flip-flop kind of guy at heart, makes my summer, but I just need to alter the the... The, the shoe so that it fits all the other, you know. I, know. I know. And and I've done a lot of that, but it's just like, yeah. there's, there's, there's a, there's also like a comfort that you get when you are feeling good for a period of time. And sure. people, people do this with gluten and dairy and all these other things that they have challenges with. And the first couple of times they introduce it, they probably don't have as much of a thing because it's, it's okay. not a lot in their system. But then, you know, you do that for, for a couple of weeks, like a vacation or something. And all of a sudden, all these things start to flare again. And you're like, Oh, I was feeling so good, but I, I, I let it go. Remember when you were a kid and you filled the bag with water and they asked you to poke a nail into it? And at first, you know, like you just have like these miniature holes and like water is coming out. And all of a sudden you poke one little hole and the whole bag just like comes out. And I remember as a kid, I thought it was the funniest experiment because it was like this very small thing with this massive outcome. And in a way, that's what our health is, you know, again, back to the balance between a little bit more of what's good and a little bit less of what's bad. If you keep poking holes at something for long enough, it's not going to have the strength and it's going to implode on you. Yeah. And I think we, we generally have come to this place where dependent rolls from super healthy to unhealthy, and then it goes back, but it goes forth and back. And one of the reasons why... I don't know if we ever talked about this, but but in Miami, we have what we call a reintroduction. I call it relapse, but I've been told that that's not how we talk about it. <laughs> but the reality is that somebody is not feeling well. You figure out why. You take that out of their diet. And then they feel well again. Yeah. And if you actually say, Arrivederci, have a good life, at that point, you're going to see them again. Whether it's six months or 12 months or two years later is unknown. That depends on the strength of the 
of the mental uh, model that person has. But if you instead reintroduce that trigger, you make them sick, you sort of have a new feedback loop. Yeah. It's sort of like the, the hot plate scenario, right? Like you only do it once and you need to have that re that feedback loop so that the patient does not think of this as something that's, or maybe that helped a bit, but yeah. it's very clear. I ate my way into this. I can eat my way out of this. Yeah. And not to say everything is a dietary thing, but whatever the intervention is, if, if, if you know that doing it gives you one result and not doing it gives you another result, there's a feedback loop that actually um, always will preserve health. So, so in, in terms of what, what MIME has done, because, because you've, you know, people who want to learn, you know, go in, into more depth of what, of what you've done as we listen to our first episode, but because you're basically kind of doing a health coaching, which includes nutrition and 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 data, what how is how is that evolving as you guys as as you go along with with working with people? What kinds of things are you are you finding long term that that people are able to really grab? Because it's as we're talking about this, I'm thinking. I, you know, about my situation where I, I make the mistakes over and over again. And, and you know, they're, they're minor mistakes when it comes right down to it. I've had, you know, plenty of food challenge things that I've overcome and, and that I rarely will slip back into now just because I just know how, how much better I feel. Are, are, are those things that, that you can then, you know, in terms of tracking this data and, and getting this information, is that stuff you're able to present back to them that they can see now with some sort of clarity Oh, exactly. Yeah. So, so that's the whole, that's the whole point, right? So we are data driven company and we use the data to inform the decisions. Like a lot of times we get the question. So you're sort of like an elimination diet company. And I'm like, Oh God, no. Like I would not have lasted three days on that because it's just a very tiresome process. And for most people, they don't have the stamina to, to go about it. You tell me not to do something, I'll pretty much think about it until I do it. So for me, what we are doing is we're letting the data drive the process. We understand this is a potential trigger. And then we hypothesis test whether that's actually the case or how the algorithms are sort of doing it. But the reality is that once you pinpoint those triggers, whether dietary or otherwise, then it becomes very clear. And so I always sort of jokingly say when the price is right, so if I'm, if I'm in a position where I have constant stomach ache or I'm bedridden or whatever it is that my issue is, and you can tell me that, oh, you stay away from cauliflower and broccoli, you'll be fine. Or dairy will keep you out of the wheelchair. Or in my case, oh, you know those stairs? No problem. Just don't eat chicken. Hmm. It becomes a very clear distinction I think for the, the problem that most autoimmune patients have is that they've been given 100 different rules. They're intermittently cheating on all of them because they have no idea what actually works for them. Yeah, yeah. And what we do is we not only help people map out what is actually the triggering event, but we also show them what is the impact. And I think that's the difference is that when you understand what something does to you, then it's a very different game. So yeah. there is there is absolute nose, you know, similar to a celiac reaction. When you have that sort of reaction, it's not a maybe baby. It's not like, oh, I'll do yeah. it once in a while. It's this you cannot do. And then there's some things where you're like, these things would be, you know, probably better not to do all the time. You could do it at weddings and birthdays and weekends, right. but it cannot be an everyday thing. Yeah. And I think... So the way I look at Miami is that we are giving people a blueprint to how their body works. And I think all of us sort of when given good instructions are in a much better place. Does that mean that nobody slips up? Of course not. But they're extremely aware. And that self-awareness allows people to take back control. And so our mission really is to have people reclaim their health. Um, I love road analogies, but the whole thing about as long as you are able to stay on the road, then 
you know, it doesn't really matter whether you're driving at a fast speed or a slow speed and so on. But the moment you drive yeah. into the ditch, it becomes a completely different problem yeah. to solve. You might not even be able to get out of the ditch on yourself. You have to call AAA and like all of a sudden there's a lot of involvement and a lot of hardship to actually get back on the road. But if, if you have control over your healthcare in the sense that you are able to at least stay on the road, then um, a lot of the anxiety will go away. A lot of things will sort of round itself off. And, you know, I'm definitely a testament to it. You know, I'm yeah. in my mid-40s and I'm healthier now than I was in my 20s and 30s. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I feel the same way. So how, so with your road analogy, when, when, when we first get, when we first start working with someone, we're going to try to get as much information as we can from testing or blood work or whatever we can get. But there, there's always this, there's always this time period that, and I've chosen to use craniosacral therapy a lot of times when I'm working, whether it's an orthopedic issue, whether it's a, you know, a trauma, head injury, whatever it is, because for me, it's the lowest risk factor in term and with the most benefit that I can get from, from, you know, a treatment early on. And it also gives me like with this little, what, what kind of result can I get with just that little amount of, of input, Right. Is there something similar to that that you do, you know, in those early stages? Because what I think sometimes people, you know, when they're working with a health coach or a doctor or someone like me, it doesn't matter what it is, they think we, we by, us, you know, doing the intake and assessment, we should be able to, you know, start a protocol right away and solve that problem. But there's, a, there's always going to be an experimentation period, you know, to some extent where we, but, but still try to keep them on the, on the road, <laughs> keep them out of the yeah. ditch in, in the beginning. I will say that, of course, we, we have the benefit of the more volume you have going through the program, the more data you have to suggest what would be the appropriate next step for this individual um, set of challenges. Yeah. So, you know, where we were a couple of years ago versus, you know, just a year ago to today, we get better and better at understanding what small things would we be right. able to implement in this particular case to create the most uh, bang for your buck, so to speak? Um, I think from, from where I'm sitting, we have about 17 days originally when people start, or not originally, initially when people start on the program to really nail it. If we don't in those 17 days make a markedly difference for the individual, that they can see and feel in the everyday life, yeah. we're going to lose them. Lose. Yeah, and it's so, the same, same with me. And does that mean that we have all of that data up front to pinpoint triggers? No, that actually typically takes four, four and a half weeks for us to get that much data. Right. So what do we then do? And what we found is processes have been breaking down for a long time. And we basically stack all of those process breakdowns to figure out where would we be able to get the most leverage for this individual. Yeah. If you, for example, if you've not had a normal bowel movement since, you know, 82, you're going to make that a priority. Yeah. You need you need to have daily bowel movements and you haven't had that, that's going to be a priority. And so we are sort of thinking of the body as building blocks. And if some of those building blocks are missing or broken, that's going to be our focus. Yeah. And I think that's um, it's a very pragmatic way of looking at healthcare. But I think that that's why we are creating the, the success that we are, is that it's, it's not a magic wand. We can only be shepherds. You are the one doing the work. Yeah. But we are giving you a tool and we are holding your hand until you get to that place yeah. where you can wave goodbye to us. Um, we have a, a, a care program similar to, you know, the app store, you buy your iPhone and it's probably more beloved to most than their healthcare. And, um, and you, and you buy that insurance because you want to be able to always go back and have a new screen or whatever you need. Um, and similarly for us, just because you've gone through our program, you've identified your triggers, you're healthy and you're happy because this was something you didn't imagine it doesn't mean that you're not going to be able to slip up either because you didn't know, like you might've had, you know, a histamine intolerance and a year later you forgot that salmon was a part of that category yeah. and you started eating it excessively and started feeling bad. 
And a 10-minute call with a Miami health coach could help you identify it and you could go on with your life. But for some people, they have big life events that happens and they really need to go back, not necessarily to the drawing board, but they need to go back and get a little bit more intensive help. And that's what we're here for. Because as an autoimmune patient, you're going to be vulnerable for the remainder of your life. And we want you to come in, have the insertion, and then go back out and live your life to the fullest. But if you stumble or, God forbid, fall, we want to be there to to help you pick you up. Or, or even I think there's there's a point at which someone feels so much better because they've they've been feeling so horrible for a period of time. You might get them, you know, say 20% better. They live that way for a while and feel pretty, you know, have start feeling pretty great, but realize I might actually be able to feel better than this. Yeah. And, and, and that wasn't even like something that, you know, anyone could conceive of, you know, before that I work with a lot of people like this, where all of a sudden, you know, there's, you know, they're starting to realize there's no end to how well I could actually be in this situation. If I just kept working on these, these, these little pieces that I've, some of them I've been cheating with or whatever. We definitely see that a lot. And we also see, which I think is a very natural thing is that when people sign up for the program, the biggest obstacle to get sort of on the other side of is this notion that I can't get my hope up. Mm. I cannot get my hope up because the last five times that I my hope up, I ended up falling flat on my face and I'm not, I'm I'm just, I can't take another defeat. So actually getting people comfortable with the fact that you don't have to put all of the, the hope, coins that you have left into this. You just have to do what is required of the process. And if we're successful, then the results will show. And then you can sort of recalibrate uh, at that point. I think, unfortunately, for a lot of people, um, I sort of think of it as like, you know, like you have a piggy bank and you, you only have so much hope saved up. And if you spend it all in, in one go initially, for a lot of people, that just means that they surrender to being sick because there's no more hope. And then yeah. others sort of spend a little bit along the way and they, they, they keep getting frustrated or let down, but they keep having some to spend. And and I think it's it's a much bigger thing than we 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 don't talk about it, but but it is there. And I think um, any uh, healthcare worker that works with people who have been chronically ill will attest to the fact that they come in sort of defeated and very worried about setting the expectations too high. Yeah. And I think from my perspective, if we do not blow their expectations out of the park, we failed them like everything before. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I go through that a little bit too, but I, 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 I I think I think the the model that is is the, the shift that I feel like is going on in terms of in terms of healthcare is that with with someone like you or me or you know this this is this is becoming a bigger part of of healthcare in general I think we need to almost have this coach in the early stages just like we would for any new thing that we're learning if you're taking piano lessons if you're playing a sport where there's an educational piece to this that has to go on for a period of time. And you were sort of talking about this hand-holding period. I use that same analogy because I think that that that, that hand-holding period is really sort of boosting their confidence in their body's ability to, to believe that they can actually heal again. Because I know you've been through this. And once you've been through it, when as we both have, then you know somebody else can do it as well. And you kind of know what that process looks like. Or, I mean, I'm sure you have shared your experience a number of times because for someone to see you, I mean, I'm, I'm almost, I'm going to be 50 in a month. So for someone sees me and thinks, I can't believe you ever had problems, you know? And I, and I think that's an important thing. Well, that's the beauty, right? Is now you get to do the next big upgrade, five, 5.0, and the technology and the software and everything has been a little bit improved. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. But that I, I think that's that's really the hand-holding thing that needs to continue to go on. I mean, that's part of the reason I had started a podcast is that I think the, the this this kind of basic understanding of of how 
but you know, I think self-care has this very sort of fluffy, <laughs> you know, sound to it, but it, it really is just part of lifestyle. It's not, it's not that complicated either, you know, I think, but we do need to learn, you know, what you're doing, I think is so important because the tracking part of it and, you know, and like you were saying, you're eight years in, I've, I'm, I'm 22 plus years into my career and, and, you know, having done almost 25,000 sessions with people, I'm just looking for the same patterns over, you know, that, or, or some, something, and if something is really an anomaly, yeah. I spend a lot of time thinking and <laughs> talking to people about it because I, I want to know. I always talk about it as dissonance. Yes. Because I, I can sit next to somebody on an airplane and almost be able to tell them what is going on because the way people talk, the thing that they frame, the way that they position certain things, it almost gives away where the culprit could be. Yeah. And I think we're just not trained to do that for ourselves. We have blind spots. And I think what we need to acknowledge is exactly what you're saying is that the future of healthcare could just look very different. I'm loving like this earlier this week, the Wall Street Journal had um, had a um, article with the headline, the doctor won't see you now. And I just thought it was such a, a great title, right? Because we know that that has been the most influential saying of all sayings ever is the doctor will see you now. But in the future, we're not going to have just the white coats. It's going to be a lot of, health coaches. It's going to be a lot of nurse practitioners. It's probably going to be a lot of people we haven't even heard about yeah. or thought about yet. And whether they're economists or data scientists or something completely different doesn't matter. What matters is that we are finally on this highway to health where we are actually starting to improve and look beyond sort of the parameters of what it looked like in the past. Yeah. And I think having that outlook to the future it's going to make all the difference. I don't really care whether it's cranial therapy or tracking or something completely different. Yeah. I just want people to get better and be able to have the control to keep themselves well. Yeah, absolutely. That's 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 where I'm at as well. Well, Meta, it's always so fun. Very lined here. <laughs> it's always it's always so fun to talk to you through all this stuff. But I I felt like this was a very specific time with what's going on, and I, I was I was so curious to hear, you know, how you were kind of looking at things right now, and in, in, in the midst of all this, and the fact that you're that you're getting some data. I, I can't wait to see what you do with it at some maybe, point. Maybe maybe you and me should do a readout later this year. Okay, that sounds good. Awesome. All right. Thanks, Meta. Have a good one. Meta Diabert, folks. As I mentioned in this one, I work with a lot of individuals on the autoimmune spectrum. And one thing that's important to understand is that it is a broad spectrum. And the signs and symptoms become clearer as the condition worsens. We often look to a magic pill at these moments, but that's not really how healing happens. Pills are usually just for symptoms. What Meta understands is that in most cases, there's a lot to learn if we track diet and lifestyle alone that will give us clues as to what our biggest triggers are and the edits that we need to make to improve healthy function. This does take a focused effort on the front end, and it's helpful to have the support and accountability of a coach. But it's no different than working on improving any discipline or skill. And the rewards in this case are energy, well-being, and the potential for your life ahead. When I first told Meta about the name I chose for the podcast, she loved it. And she even used it in this episode. Sure, it's clever, and nearly everyone I tell the name to sings the ACDC melody to it. The meaning, though, for me keeps changing and evolving. But at its essence, it has a lot to do with what Meta said here. We're either on the road to health or we're in the ditch. What we both understand because of our own health challenges earlier in life is that it's better to be on the road, even if you're going slowly. And it's my hope that through these kinds of conversations, you'll gain insight into what can speed you along your road and healing and improve your state of being. Let me know what you thought of this topic and conversation. You can hit me up anytime by email, jeremy at highway2.health. Thanks for listening and for all that you do. Be good to yourself, be kind to each other, and take care of your planet. Be well, my friends.
If you enjoy podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Medicine in America, hosted by Anthony Manson and Todd Harrington, shares the stories of physicians, other healthcare professionals, and industry leaders who are changing the way we deliver care. There's an episode that you should check out called Primary Care Reimagined with Subscription-Based Preventative Care Model. It's an inspiring call for a paradigm shift in primary care. All of their episodes highlight innovative ideas at the forefront of the movement to transform our healthcare system. Check out Medicine in America on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com.